Now, 1 Corinthians 15, we'll read, uh, we'll read verses 20 through 28. Uh, when you find a place, would you stay? Go ahead and <coughs> read through 34. I know I told you that, but go ahead and okay. read through a few words, we'll, please. We'll read down through 34. Thanks. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterwards those who are Christ at his coming. Then coming in, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he... So he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is expected. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son of himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead, if the dead are not, uh, do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat eat and drink for tomorrow we die do not be deceived evil company corrupts good habits awake to righteousness and do not sin for some do not have the knowledge of God I speak this to your shame let's pray <clears throat> Father we do come in the name of Jesus Lord asking for help this morning with uh, understanding Your Word and applying it. We thank You for Your truth. We, we thank You for the fact that it changes us by Your, your Spirit <clears throat> making Your Word effective in our hearts. Lord, we are changed and conformed to the image of Christ. We thank You so much for Your work of grace in us. Lord, we do pray... Uh, especially for this family, the Gowan family. And Lord, ask that they may know Your comfort, Your strength, Your grace. Um, and Father, find Your grace to be sufficient even in this time of tragedy. Again, we thank You. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You be seated. Does your uh, Bible open to 1 Corinthians 15 yet? It's kind of automatically. I know we spent a lot of time here, but there's a lot here. It's a lengthy chapter. And uh, some of the rest of it, um, well, the rest of it from verse 35 on, uh, I think we're going to be able to take in more of a bigger slice. But, but, um, so, so the rest of it probably move a little quicker after this morning. Um, but it's a great 
truth, great doctrine, <laughs> the doctrine of the resurrection. Um, awesome truth for us. And, and I want to look at it this morning in, in two just, just very basic a- aspects and, and divide it up two ways here. Um, that is resurrection reality for the future and resurrection reality for now. And we'll probably spend most of our time on the first one and, and then just say a few things about the second one uh, as we wind it up. And I might, might as well say this up front. For, for those of you who have been waiting to get to verse 29, um, <laughs> I don't want to disappoint you here, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to have very little to say about that because we know almost nothing about what Paul is talking about there. Um, we just don't. So, so, I mean, we could do a lot of speculating, but I'm, I'm not real fond of that. So, so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll mention it, but there's, there's just not a lot of answers for that passage. Okay, and I'll say a little more when we get there. So, resurrection reality for the future. Now, first of all, let me, let me just do, a, again, a bit of recapping here. The, the issue here is that some of the Corinthians are saying there is no resurrection. That, that takes you back to verse 12 right there. Um, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection? Now, Paul does what he so often does, and, and that is make points by asking questions. Jesus was fond of this um, way of teaching too. And um, so, so you hear a lot of rhetorical questions in Paul's writing. It's what today they call the Socratic method. Um, and Socrates did, um, did precede Paul and even the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry um, by about 400 years. But, um, but since Jesus is the eternal Son of God, he, he, he preceded Socrates. So this is, they call it the Socratic method of teaching, but, uh, but it is not an invention of Socrates, okay? <laughs> but you see that a lot in the, in the Apostle Paul's writings, rhetorical questions, to make a point. Um, and so that's what he does here. He's saying to the Corinthians, you need to think through what you're saying here. There's no resurrection. Now, I want to say this too. I've, I've mentioned this several times, but just to make sure that we're clear on it. I think, just from the things that are said here, it's not that they're denying the resurrection of Jesus. It's that they're denying um, the bodily resurrection of believers. So they look back and somehow they see you know, the, the atoning work and, and uh, even the resurrection of Christ as, as, um, as fulfilling what it was supposed to do and atoning for our sins. But they look forward and say there's no bodily resurrection for us, apparently. And, uh, and so Paul is coming back and using this line of argument in, in basically in verses 12 through 19, saying, if you're right, then that also does away with the resurrection of Jesus and His atoning work and all of its effects. Now, we've gone over that in quite a bit of detail, so I won't go uh, completely over that again. I just wanted to make sure that we, that we understand Paul is saying the resurrection of Jesus makes our resurrection inevitable. That's, that's glorious news. I mean, what, what he's saying is it's effective. The resurrection of Jesus had an intended effect. And so, as one writer says it, with, with the resurrection of Christ, with the death and resurrection of Christ, God set things in motion 
that must be completed. Now again, this is glorious news for us because it, it, it's all included in all of that, of course, is our redemption, our salvation. This is one reason that in, um, from, from the, what we call the Reformed perspective, Reformed theology, that we are pretty adamant about the eternal security of the believer. I think this is one reason Paul writes to the Philippians and says, I'm confident that he who began a good work in you will complete it. Because Jesus' atoning work has an intended effect which God will see to it comes to pass. So Paul's saying there's a series of events here that are set into motion with the resurrection of Christ. Included in that is our resurrection. So it's inevitable. The resurrection of Christ means that we will also rise again. So he goes through all of that logic in those verses. If the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised, and you're still in your sins, and those who have already died in the Lord have perished, and we're of all people to be most pitied. What are you saying? If there's, if there's no resurrection to look forward to, what y'all have done is removed all hope. We're still in our sins. People who have already died in Christ have perished. We who are alive are the most to be pitied because we're suffering all these things in this world and we have no hope to look forward to. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Paul said. Now he's answering back in verse 20. Here's, here's the reality. He's already given the if you're right scenario. Now he's, now he's back to reality. This is what the truth really is. Christ is in fact raised from the dead or out of the dead. Now that doesn't just mean that He um, got up on the third day. Lazarus was raised from the dead too and then later He died again. It doesn't just mean that Christ got up on the third day, but it means that He's alive now. He was, he was raised up and He lives. He lives. Christ is in fact, or has been, raised. The perfect tense there. So it's, it's something that happened in the past with abiding results. He's alive. He, it's not just He was raised. He is raised. <laughs> he is raised from the dead. The first fruits. Now that's where He's making His point about uh, our resurrection being guaranteed. Christ is the first fruits. So we, when we talked about this last Sunday night, you, you uh, farmers, you, you, you get excited about the first fruits, don't you? When, when you go out there and, and you, you finally got tomatoes or, you know, squash or whatever it is. Um, and one reason that you get excited about that is because you know there's more to come. In other words, that, that's just a, this is just the first fruits. And if they look good, you think everything's doing good, you know, everything's worked, the plants are healthy, and the first fruits are good, and so you know in your head there's more to come. This is just a sign of what the rest of the crop's going to look like as it comes in. Well, that's, that's what Paul is talking about here. It's, it's a sort of guarantee. Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died, in other words. And then again, he uses that same term again in, in verse 23. Each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong. So what he's saying is, 
The fact that Jesus was raised up from the dead is a guarantee that we'll be raised up. The fact that, and here's kind of more to the point, the fact that Jesus was raised bodily and now exists in a glorified state as the first fruits of the resurrection, that's a guarantee that we will be raised bodily and live in a glorified state. So Paul's saying there's a lot at stake with this, with this doctrine. There's a lot that rides on this. The resurrection of Christ guarantees our resurrection. He's the first fruits. And the fullness lies ahead of us, but it's coming. What Paul is saying. It's a sure thing. It's a sure thing. God's going to finish what He started. So, uh, now, and I'll go over this kind of briefly too, verse 22, for as an atom all die, he's, he's making an analogy here, we all suffer the consequences of Adam's sin, as an atom all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. Again, he's talking about the, the, um, the implications of Christ's resurrection are the, uh, the effect of Christ's resurrection. In Christ, all shall be made alive. He's saying this, there's a little bit of, an, of a reverse analogy here. Just like in Adam, all died. In Christ, all are made alive. We're going to be raised up. Is Paul's point. So he says, um, again in verse 23, but each in his own order. So there's a... There's a, uh, a order to these things. Christ, the first fruits, there's a chronological order. Christ, the first fruits, of course, he's already been resurrected. And then he jumps all the way to the second coming. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So there's, there's the kind of the order of the resurrection. Christ first, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, those who are in Christ. So, His resurrection, again, makes ours inevitable. I'll say it another way. His resurrection assures ours. Jesus said, for example, because I live, you will live also. Well, how do we know that He's not just thought more of himself you know, than he was. How do we know that what he says is really true? The resurrection. God's stamp of approval on, on all that Jesus did, all that Jesus claimed. His resurrection assures, assures our resurrection. So Paul's saying it's inevitable. That's, this is the, 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 the resurrection reality for the future. We have something to look forward to. So he goes on. We'll pick up in verse 24. Uh, and he's still talking about order here. In fact, I better go back to verse 23 so we kind of get this thought. But each in his own order. So all are made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to to Christ. And that word coming is per, uh, parousia. It's another one of those Greek words that probably every believer ought to know because it's, it's, it's used so much in the Scripture. And, uh, and it's referring to that event, the, the coming of Christ, the second coming, the, the parousia. Um, and you'll see a lot of, you know, if you read much um, 
stuff about uh, the end times, especially you'll see uh, you'll see a lot where they actually use the transliteration. So at his parousia, at his coming, those who belong to Christ—that is, that's when they'll be raised up. That's us when we'll be raised up. Um, then, verse twenty-four comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now you might, for, for a second there, you might think, okay, Paul, Paul got sidetracked. He went into a, you know, a parenthetical thought here. He's talking about the resurrection of the second coming now. He's talking about how Christ is going to be victorious over all of his enemies. But see, one reason he brings that in is because one of the enemies and the final one to be defeated is death. Is death. And Paul's point, again, is this is sure and it is necessary. It necessarily flows out of his resurrection. Why is that? Because, you, you think about the analogy for a minute with Adam and Christ. In Adam, all die. In Christ, all are made alive. So in other words, what, what Jesus was doing in his work is undoing what Adam did. Right? You know, we, Adam sinned, we all die. And we're separated from God. So Jesus comes and He says, I came to destroy the works of the devil. And I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. And he that believes in Me shall never die, but shall live. So what He's doing is undoing what Adam did. Now, we, we necessarily died in Adam. Adam stood as our representative he sinned in the garden. He fell. We fell in Him and with Him. Because He died, we died. It's a necessary effect of Adam's fall. Well, Paul is saying, Christ, His purpose in coming, Jesus' purpose was to undo that, to reverse the effects of sin. So how do you... How do you do that? How do you undo that? How do you go from dead to undead? How do you go from dead to made alive? Well, if you do that, is that not a resurrection? From, from, from death to life? From dead to undead? From dead to made alive? That's a resurrection. You see what Paul's saying? It's necessary. It's a necessary effect of the work of Christ. If Christ went to the cross and died for our sins, suffered and died for our sins, and rose again on the third day, then if, if everything he, he did was real, I mean, if He really was who He said He was, if He really did accomplish what He came to accomplish, then it is a necessary effect that we be made alive because He's undoing the damage that Adam did. We're dead in Adam, but we're made alive in Christ. So, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Conquered. 
done away. He's going to have more to say about that as we move along. Um, I, I need to mention here, he's, Paul is referencing two Psalms here, two Old, Old Testament Psalms here. Uh, one is Psalm 8, verse 1. And he's seeing these as messianic. In other words, they're, they're, they're uh, speaking of the Messiah to come. And these passages are used frequently um, in the New Testament to speak of the work of Christ. <clears throat> and I'll give you uh, a couple other examples. But first, let's look at, let, let's look at the passages here. Psalm 8. Let's see. I think I told you one, but it's not verse 1. It's verse, it's verse uh, 6. Psalm 8, verse 6. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. In fact, let's, let's back up a little bit. Verse 4. What is man, Psalm 8, 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the, than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Now that's, this is the, the part that Paul has in view here. You have put all things under his feet. The other one is Psalm 110. And this is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. And I don't know how many times, but it's quoted several times in the New Testament. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So, Psalm 8, 6 says He's going to, he's going to put all things under His feet. Other, other words, everything's going to be brought into subjection to the, to the rule and authority of Jesus Christ. God's going to put all things under His feet. And then here in Psalm 110, He says, the Lord says to Jesus, the Lord says unto my Lord, um, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. He, Paul says in, in uh, Corinthians 15, He must reign. He must reign until everything is put under his feet. His enemies have to be made his footstool. You may remember Jesus quoting this passage, by the way. Um, again, going back to what we were talking about earlier in, the, in a uh, rhetorical question. You know, he asked the Pharisees, who is David talking? Uh, who, who is being talked about here? The Lord said unto my Lord. <laughs> so, so who is David's Lord? If, it, if it's, if, you know, the Lord said unto my Lord. It's a messianic psalm. It's referring to Christ, the Messiah. Um, so, Psalm 110.1 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. Several places. The two, those two that we just read, Psalm 8.6 and Psalm 110.1, are in view in uh, at least two other places here, 1 Corinthians 15, and at least two other places, uh, one of which is Ephesians one. Verses 20 through 22. 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is the body, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Ephesians 1, um, 20-23 that I just read. And then uh, also in Hebrews 2, and I'm just giving you these as references in case you want to go back and look at them, but in Hebrews 2, um, verses 5-8. through 8, Hebrews 2, 5-8. <clears throat> For it was not to angels that God subjected the, wor- the world to come, of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, the writer of Hebrews says, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower. Uh, you, made him, you made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Okay. Um, so Paul has that in view here in 1 Corinthians 15. So he, he's looking back at that as a messianic, both of those passages, as, as prophecies about Jesus and all things being brought into subjection to Him. Why is that important for the present argument? Well, because, for one thing, again, it's, he's talking about this series of events that God has set into motion with the resurrection of Christ that is unstoppable. It's, it's going to come to pass. It's going to happen. Paul says there, there's going to be an order Hasn't happened yet, you know, in his writings to the, to the uh, Thessalonians. There he's dealing with some people saying that the resurrection has already taken place. He has to set them straight on that. It's not happened yet, and it's going to happen in a certain order. Christ the firstfruits, then those who are alive at His parousia, at His coming. Then comes the end. Again, I'm looking at verse 24, 1 Corinthians 15, 24. Then comes the end. So Paul's saying, here's another step in the process that will come to pass. And this is where our, where our hope is grounded. Now he's pointing to the end of time as we know it. That's hard to even think about. If you, I mean, if you really try to. And, and I encourage you to try to if you don't haven't already. But <laughs> you know, don't feel stupid or discouraged or whatever when you can't wrap your mind around it. All we know is time and space, and at least in the sense that we know it, it's coming to an end at this point that Paul references, verse twenty-four. Then comes the end when he delivers up the kingdom to God. So now this is this is where everything has been moving since God created the first thing. This is where it's all been heading. This, this is history's destination. It has been from the beginning. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Now, there's a lot implied there. I mean, we see that same terminology used in other uh, epistles, specifically referencing demonic 
powers. Or, I mentioned a moment ago, you know, Jesus Himself said <clears throat> He came to destroy the works of the devil. That's what's in view here. Every power is going to be brought into subjection or destroyed. He says this again this way here. He delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So Christ is going, going to be shown to be Lord overall. So He reigns and will reign until that happens. Verse 25. He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. Oh man, this is something for us to keep in mind because we, we, we're still feeling the effects of sin. We're still feeling the effects of Satan's dominion in this world. His rule insofar as he does, and he does to some extent. He has, he has an influence, an evil influence in this world. And nobody escapes being touched by that. I mean, it hits us in the form of things like sickness, you know, disease. It hits us in the form of things like bad relationships. I mean, these are symptoms. Because our hearts are corrupt. And because this world is fallen. So you can, you can walk through your front yard and step on a sticker. <laughs> because of the fall. Because of sin. You can bump your head, bust it open, do damage. Because of the fall. Because of sin. You can hurt other people and be hurt. Because of the fall. Because of sin. And unless Jesus comes while we're still alive, you will die. And I will die. Physically. We will die physically. Because of the fall. Because of sin. What I'm saying is this. And, and this is what I think Paul is saying to the Corinthians. No resurrection? No resurrection? then no hope. No hope. But, Paul says, in fact, here's the fact. In fact, Christ has been raised, and so all of these other things are inev inevitable. Our own bodily resurrection, the exaltation of Christ, and He's already been exalted, but I mean, in, in the sense of the final consummation, that He will be shown to be Lord over all, that every enemy will be destroyed, including death, will be destroyed. He must reign, Paul says, until all of this is accomplished. God has set things in motion and they must and will come to pass. And this is our hope. This is, the, this is resurrection reality for the future. You can go read other passages like Revelation 21. No more crying. No more sorrow. No more death. Right? Because that's where we're headed. Because the resurrection is real. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. 
It's inevitable, Paul is saying. Boy, we, we, we move through this life, don't we? Uh, often in fear of death. There's, that's somewhat understandable. But the Bible always presents death as the enemy. I mean, we're not supposed to like it. But we don't have to fear it in this sense. We don't have to fear it because we know what's on the other side of it. Victory. Victory. I mean, that's where he's going. When we get to the end of the chapter, he's going to say, it's swallowed up. Death is swallowed up in victory. So, we have great hope. And that's Paul's point. The resurrection is real, and it gives us great hope for the future. Now, verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He, that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in, subjected, in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Now that, you read through there, that can't be a little confusing, but it's just simply saying that obviously God the Father, when, when the Scripture says all things will be put in subjection to Christ, God the Father is the exception. He's the one who puts all things in subjection to Christ. And so, He Himself is an exception to that. Not only that, but He says, verse 28, when all things are subjected to Him, that is to Christ, then the Son Himself, Jesus, will also be subjected to Him, God the Father, who put all things in subjection under Him. Interesting. He's going to deliver up the kingdom and then He Himself will be subjected to the Father who put all things in subjection to Him. That, so, that's a blessing, so that, that God may be all in all. There's, there's so much in that little phrase there, and I've, you know, I've thought about, you know, how do you, how do you say that? Of course, you can't say it better than it is, but said, than it is said here. But in the end, God is going to be shown to be all, all. There's a saying going around with the teenagers a few years ago. I don't know if it's still popular or not. Yeah, she's not all that. You know, or he's not all that. Kind of crazy the way they were saying it, but but it's kind of a good saying in, in, in regard to what we're saying here, because what this what the scripture says, what it says from Genesis one to Revelation twenty two, God is all that. In fact, you can just say God is all. <laughs> he's all. He's all. And the world doesn't acknowledge that at this point. It's not so obvious to most people out there. They reject it. But in the end, it's going to be shown to be the case. Jesus is going to conquer every enemy. In fact, God the Father Himself is going, to, is going to put all things under the feet of Christ. And then Jesus Himself will deliver the kingdom up to God the Father. He Himself will be, in, be subjected to the Father so that God may be all... Or if I could just paraphrase it again to make the point we were just making, he could be 
It'll be shown. It'll be demonstrated. It'll be exhibited. It'll be on display. It'll be made known that God is all in all. There's not going to be any exceptions to that rule. Like right now, we say God is all. God is everything. God is awesome. We don't even fully realize it, but we we confess it by the grace of God, and we say He's everything to us. That's not the case. In all, is it? In other words, everybody out there doesn't recognize that. In fact, even Satan is still on the move, still working. But in the end, all of these things are going to come to pass so that God may be all in all. Romans eleven thirty six, Paul says, I think essentially the same thing in a little different way. Of Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. Are all. Are all. So, you, 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 I mean, just try to meditate on that for a while. Of Him, and literally out of Him, out of God, out of, out of Him, through Him, and unto Him are all. There, there's nothing that exists. <laughs> there's nothing that exists that does exist apart from God. In other words, if God did not keep us in existence, we would just evaporate. I guess is a way to say it. We just poof, we'd be gone. Of Him, through Him, to Him are all things. So, verse twenty-nine. So, do you see? I mean, you see the importance there. Paul's saying, "All that's gone. If you're right, there's no resurrection, no hope." But you're not right. The fact is, Christ has been raised from the dead, and all of these things are coming to pass, including our bodily resurrection, the consummation of the kingdom, Christ being exalted over all, delivering up the kingdom to the Father, the Father being shown to be all in all. Paul saying, all of this is the work that God is doing. It is all inevitable. It's going to happen. And we have great hope because of it. In life and in death. So he says, and I'll try to move through this quickly. Otherwise, now he's going back to some of his rhetorical questions. Otherwise, why do people, uh, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Now, I mentioned a moment ago, we are clueless as to what was going on there. Pick up any commentary. <laughs> We're clueless as to what was going on there. So we don't know what Paul is talking about there. We do know this. No other place in the Scripture are we given instructions to be baptized for the dead. So, um, it's, it, it would seem he's referring to, the sum, to something that the Corinthians are doing. Um, well, obviously he's referring to something that the Corinthians are doing. Why, we don't know. We don't know. Um, this has never been a, a practice in uh, Orthodox Christianity. I mean, we have no references to it. it we, we don't know what was going on there. But Paul's point is easy enough, right? He's saying, you're, you're being baptized for the dead, apparently, in some form. Now, again, we don't know if it's something symbolic or something they were actually doing. But in some 
way they're being baptized for the sake of the dead. Paul's saying, why are you doing that if there's no resurrection? His his point is easy to see. It's plain enough. He's saying, what you're doing doesn't make sense if there's no resurrection. If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? There's no point in it. It doesn't make sense. And then he goes on. Verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? Because they were were existing under persecution. And that's why he said earlier, if there's no resurrection, verse 19, we're of all the most to be pitied because they they were constantly suffering persecution and hardship. And so... Again, he's making that point again. Why, why am I going through this if there's no resurrection? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized uh, on their behalf? In verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? Verse 31, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. And I think what he's saying is I'm, I'm exposed to death every day. I'm living under a death threat. And that's not just analogy or type. I mean, Paul was, was under constant threat. I'm dying every day. Why would I put myself through that if there's no resurrection? So he says, I protest. I die every day. What do I gain? Verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus? Now, I think I mentioned this last week, but we don't know of any incident where Paul was um, like thrown to lions or something like that. Um, and we do know that this, this uh, kind of statement was used metaphorically. Um, we have uh, one example of Ignatius doing the same thing when, he, when he's talking about wicked men. He refers to them as beasts. Uh, Ignatius did that referring to his captors, those who arrested him. And if you go back and read the, the Acts account of Paul in Ephesus, that makes sense. In other words, when he says beast here, he's probably talking about men who were, uh, who were persecuting him. And he's saying, why would I endure that if there's no resurrection? What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. You see what he's saying? If there's no resurrection, we might as well get the most enjoyment in the fleshly sense, in, in, the, in terms of sensuality. We, we, we might as well just get the most enjoyment we can out of this life because we just are here for a little while and we die with no hope. If there's no resurrection, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Now, here's the second point, and we'll be done. Resurrection reality for the present. All of that we just covered, we're talking essentially about the future. Let us eat and drink tomorrow we die if there's no resurrection, but there is a resurrection, so we have hope in the future. We have reason now, to suffer the things that we suffer. Okay, That's what Paul is saying if you turn it around. I fought with beasts at Ephesus. In other words, I endured persecution because there is hope beyond this life. Because the resurrection is real. Because 
Jesus is who he said he is, and so on. So now, resurrection reality for the present. Verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He gives, incidentally, and I just want to mention this here, but in all of this teaching about the resurrection, he, he gives two exhortations like that. The, the, the next one is at the very end of the chapter. Lays out the doctrine and you know the hope that we have before us and then, by way of application, gives these exhortations. So, here he says it this way. Again, what we just read. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor. Don't go on sinning. See what he's saying? It has implications for the present too. The reality of the resurrection means that we have great hope in the future. And it also means we have a way to live now. In other words, for Christians, if we, if we live with our future glorification in view, the resurrection, the consummation of our salvation, consummation of all things and the kingdom, if we, if we really are focused on that and the reality of that, then it will change how we live now. Good morals. become important. And just prior to this, he said, if, wait, if there's no resurrection, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Party, party on. Go for the gusto. Go out with a bang because you're going out. And then, you know, it's just like an extinguished candle. It's over. But that's not the case. So, we have something to live for even now. So don't be deceived, he says to the Corinthians. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right. Do not go on sinning. It's the whole exhortation. Stop. He's saying, believe the right things. <laughs> believe in the resurrection. Let, let that be what governs your lifestyle. Your, your future uh, glorified state with the Lord. Stop sinning. And all you have to do, you think for a moment about all the things we've discussed thus far. Oh, there was some sinning going on, wasn't it? Fornication. Idolatry. I mean, some of the things almost unimaginable that are going on in the Corinthian church. And Paul is saying, Stop it. These truths have a bearing on your life now. If Jesus is real, if the resurrection is real, if we're all headed for this end time when God is shown to be all in all and everything is brought in subjection to the authority and power of God in Christ Jesus, then He's saying, wake up. <laughs> wake up. Live like it. 
Come out of the drunken stupor. Do what is right. Good morals, not immorality, which he's already had to deal with them on. And then he just simply says, for some have no knowledge of God. I, I wonder, you know, when, when he says that, if, if, he, if he meant, maybe both are true, but I mean, did, did, he, did he mean that in terms of these things, like some of you aren't understanding the, the, the fullness of what all this is about, our salvation and the resurrection, you don't have the knowledge of God in that sense. Or, or maybe... He's saying, kind of expressing a fear. You know, some of you, I think, don't even know God. That one seems to be more the case to me because he says it so plainly. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. He's saying, you, your church, in Corinthian church, and there are some among you, it would seem that don't know God. So he says, wake up. The resurrection, the doctrine of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus and its consequences, which includes our own bodily resurrection and glorification. And you can go on and on and on. Everything we just discussed, this consummation of the kingdom, the exaltation of Christ, the subjugation of all things to God the Father, all of those things, the reality of all of those things, Paul says, give us great hope for the future and great purpose for the now to live accordingly. Resurrection reality for the future, then, the end, and resurrection reality for now. For now, for life now. Repentance, good works, faith in Christ. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we do thank You again for Your Word and again for these precious truths. Because Jesus lives, we will live also. Because He was raised up, we will be raised up as well. All who are in Christ, all who believe on Him, who are following Him, We pray for Your grace, Lord, to keep these things in view so that we do conduct ourselves in this life living in a constant mode of repentance, forsaking sin, following Christ as we look forward to the completion, the fullness of our salvation. Again, we thank You and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.